see a young Martin Luther there on the image uh, this morning. Reformation still on my mind, 499th anniversary, just less than three weeks ago. The 95 Theses uh, pinned by Martin Luther up to the church doors. If you're not a student of history or if you're unaware of the times that this occurred, it's helpful to have some sense of what that looked like. Uh, the Reformation is seen, depending on your perspective, as the worst thing that ever happened to the church, if you're Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox, or as a significant diversion back to Orthodoxy if you're from the Protestant stream. But for Martin Luther, remember this guy was a monk, he was a Roman Catholic, he taught Catholic theology in the university. He was a very sharp guy. But in his day, Leo X was the Pope in Rome, and Leo was known... Um, Basically, he reigned like a king. To call him extravagant in his lifestyle would be an understatement. Uh, he could not get money in fast enough. He was spending it so quickly on parties, on portraits, on the arts, you name it. He lived in gilded halls, and it took a lot of money to keep him and his entourage rolling. Part of the financial dynamic and all that was that the positions in the in the um, church hierarchy, bishops and cardinals, those were basically up for sale. So families and individuals would essentially pay for the privilege of, of overseeing churches because they were making money off those churches. Some of the money they were taking then, of course, was going to the papacy. So it was a scratch each other's back kind of a thing. So positions in the church hierarchy were for sale. Luther was encouraged to go to Rome. And he was told this would be significant in his life. It would be a great encouragement. Well, he got there and he was just absolutely discouraged and disappointed when he saw what the mother church there in Rome, the papacy, what it looked like in fact. In his own backyard of Germany, a guy named Johann Tetzel was selling what the church called indulgences. Now, part of, part of what he was doing was approved by the church officially. Part was not. The part that was approved by the papacy was this. Basically, you'd pay Tetzel... And he would tell you by the authority of the Pope that the temporary punishment of God on your sins while here in the land of the living was absolved. It was taken care of. The Pope had forgiven your sins for the price of whatever it was you gave. The unapproved part was um, he got creative and he said, not only can you get out of the temporary punishment of your sins, but you can buy your friends, relatives, loved ones out of the purging fires of purgatory. You can get them out early. So this was the milieu in which Luther was living and teaching. This is what he saw. But remember, he's one guy. And if you say, okay, why did Luther have this total different response and reaction to everything that everyone else was seeing? And this was normal life in their day. What happened for Luther? How did he come to such a different conclusion? We, we could call this in one word, a singular word, we could call this he repented. His thinking changed. And if you ask, well, how did it change? Of course, if you're familiar with his story, he came to grips with the, with the term the, justific or the righteousness of God out of Romans 1. And he understood by the call of Scripture, by the truth of God's Word, he understood the difference related to salvation between what was being taught and what was God's provision for us by faith in Christ. There was repentance on Luther's part. This wasn't some guy outside the stream of, of Catholic orthodoxy. This is a guy in the middle of it. This is a guy that's teaching Catholic theology. 
he repented because he saw the distinction between what God's Word taught and what the church was teaching. If you look at the rest of the Reformers too, you'll see essentially the same thing. That God's Spirit stirred men up to look at the Scriptures and to see the difference between what the church was teaching in their day and practicing and what God's Word called for. So the Protestant Reformation was major repentance. It was a change of mind. It was a change of heart. It was a change of practice. And it went back to the Spirit of God using the Word of God to change the way men saw things. They changed their thinking and that affected and changed everything. They read their Bibles. They saw the difference between those practices and the truths of God's Word. They changed their mind. They rethought practices and beliefs that had crept in over time. You guys know systems change typically slowly over time and what you and I consider normal in our day, someone before us or someone after us might think, what were you thinking? You know, we tend to get a blindness to our own time and place. We're talking about repentance this morning. That comes from two different word roots. Rethink. We're thinking again. We're changing my thinking. And when the Bible talks about repentance, it's not merely a mental assent. It's a change of mind and heart that produces action and attitude differences. This comes from the Greek metanoia, a change of thought or feeling. I like this, this uh, definition, practical reformation, a reversal of the past. So a week ago, we talked about grace and the multitude ways God showers us with His grace. We talked about common grace, uncommon grace, saving grace. But one of the greatest gifts of grace God ever gives a person or a church is the grace of repentance. It's interesting. You know, the first of the 95 theses uh, Martin Luther put up, the first, the first of those 95 said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's interesting take, isn't it? It wasn't repentance in a moment, it was repentance as a lifestyle. There was a lot of uh, phrases that came out of the Reformation. One that didn't come out of Luther's time, it came up about 150 years later, was Semper Reformda in the Latin, always reforming, and it comes from this sentence. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. The thought here was this, our natural inclination tends to draw us away from God and God's things, from the truth. So that if the church and if the individuals in the church aren't constantly taking their thoughts, our thoughts captive to God's Word and reforming our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, we will in fact do the same thing that Rome did. You know, it's interesting, uh, Pope Francis, Pope Leo's successor, on October 31st of this year, uh, spent it with a group of Lutherans in Sweden. And you might think that he'd castigate Martin Luther for branching off that whole group of the professing church, but he didn't. He actually said Martin Luther was, in his own way, a fine fellow, and much of what he was confronting needed to be confronted. 500 years later, a Catholic pope can look back at those excesses and say, oh yeah, some of that wasn't right. But in the day, that's not what they were saying. And you can read all about this, the papal bulls against Luther, the writings back and forth, etc., so the reformers that followed Luther said, you know, the deal is we always need to be reforming because our tendency is away. And we could say to us, to ourselves today, we always need to be repenting. Repenting for us is meant to be a lifestyle, not a once 
and done kind of thing. So, is it possible if the Church of Rome needed to be reformed, if the Protestant reformers that followed thought that reformation and repentance was a way of life, is it possible that any of us need repenting today? I wonder if that's a possibility. Or maybe we've got it all right. We've got it all right. Our practice is right. Our theology is right. Or maybe not. So, this is in the foundation series we've been in for six or seven weeks. And today we're looking a little bit at what God says regarding our need for repentance, not once or occasionally, but as a way of life. And to this, we're saying, you remember the end of Matthew 7, we want to take in the truth of what God says about our need for repentance, and then we want to build our life on that. A life built on the rock of the truth of God's call for repentance is a life that will stand up to the storms of life and the things that follow. So onward we go. I hope you've got a study sheet. One of the things you see in Scripture is that repentance is not this once and we're done. You know, sometimes we think about repentance. I was uh, unsaved and I heard the gospel and I repented of my sins and I trusted Christ and it's all glory from thereafter. And it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not the way this works. I want to just briefly, I'll walk through a few passages in the Scriptures to show the call to repentance. And friends, not (laughs) what you'll find is that God's calling His own people to repentance all the time. It's not like the gospel is the singular thing in which God calls the world to repent and believe, though he does. But when you go through the the pages of the Bible, you see God's always calling his own people to repentance. There's a great example of this in Deuteronomy 30. This is the end of Moses' life, and he's reminding this generation that's going to go into the land of promise, the promises and the curses God had said, if you keep my covenant, this is what I'll do, I'll bless. If you forsake my covenant, and God says, and I know you will, This is the way I'm going to curse you. And one of those curses is you're going to be put out of the land. It's going to be hard on you. But he says this, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and and listen to the process, you're going to be in the land uh, that isn't your, your home place. You're going to be in captivity. When that happens, and you call them to mind, when you're in, they'll be in Babylon. He, he says, you're going to call my words to mind. You're going to think again about what I told you. Among the nations where the Lord our God has driven you. And this, you're going to return to the Lord your God. You're going to rethink about the promises and the curses. And you're going to return in heart to the Lord your God. You and your children will obey His voice in all that I command you today. With all your heart, all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortune. Do you see that whole process? You're going to be in a place you don't want to be. You're going to call to mind. You're going to rethink. You're going to go back in your mind to the things God had said. You're going to return to God in your heart, and then your actions are going to follow suit. That's repentance. That's the normal call of God on all of us. Rethink, reform, and new actions that follow. Uh, Job, many people find the book of Job discouraging. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is so spot on, so encouraging. And here you've got, in his day... God says of Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's, that's some appellation, isn't it? That Job is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. But what happens in that story? He responds initially to the sufferings God allows through Satan really well, doesn't he? And, and we love that. But, but you go in, and I don't remember which chapter it is. You go in far enough, and you know what he does? He says, God's unjust. And, and what's happening to me, what, what's going on in my life, this is unjust. And he blames God. And so God shows up in chapter 38 and he reproves Job. Now, Job is his man. But this is what Job says at the end in Job 42. 
He said, I'd heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you with my eyes and I repent in dust and ashes. I thought I knew, but I see you. I thought again. I've changed my thoughts towards you. I repent. I know something now I didn't know before. I know it in a way I didn't know it before. I know you in a way I didn't know you before. And so I repent humbly in dust and ashes. You remember what John the Baptist's first words on the scene? And remember, this is significant. Uh, the revolution that, was, that came with Jesus, it was from outside, not inside church hierarchy. In a sense, just like the Reformation. So John the Baptist, he's not part of the religious establishment. This is significant in the Gospels. He comes from outside, and you remember what he says? His first words in the Gospels are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, what, what you guys think is okay isn't okay. And the kingdom of heaven's at hand. God is coming. He's always going to fulfill His promises. And you're not ready. You need to change. You need to change your thinking. You need to change your actions. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus comes on the, on the scene. This is uh, Matthew 3 and Matthew 4. And what does Jesus say? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to those who are part of the covenant community. And the first thing He tells them is, you've got to change your way of thinking. Your, your thoughts towards God are off. Your practices are off. You've got to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, it's interesting. The Judaism of Jesus' day was a lot like Rome of Luther's day. You remember, there's a key phrase I love out of Matthew 15, 9. So you're in a religious group. And guys, this could happen any place, right? This could happen at Lion and Lamb. Where Jesus says this, he said, you guys are teaching as precepts the doctrines of men. You started with God's Word, but from them you've extrapolated. You remember, because they've got all the rules. They've got all the things you're supposed to do and not do, the religious establishment in Jesus' day. But you remember every time He corrects them what He does? He comes back to Scripture. He comes back to God's Word, and He says, you didn't get that right. This is what you need to come back to. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he preaches to the Jewish community that crucified Jesus. And you remember what he says there? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Think again about that one you rejected. That's the one you should have accepted. Repent and be baptized in His name. Um, actually, yeah, in the, the uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the seven letters to the churches, those are to churches, interestingly, too. Is it possible for a church to repent? Well, it is. Because in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus calls churches to repent five times in those seven letters. Individuals repent, churches repent, corporate bodies repent. So what is the deal? So repentance is a big deal throughout the pages of Scripture, and guys, it's addressed more often than not to those in relationship with God, not to those outside. Why is it that repentance needs to be a way of life for us? And I'll suggest four things here. You'd probably come up with some others. The first for me is ignorance. If I don't know what God wants me to do, if I don't understand that there's a right way and a wrong way and I simply go along in my ignorance, I need to repent. I need to gain new information, new thoughts. And sometimes that's all that's going on. If we're ignorant, we need to repent because we need to gain God's mind. And He's laid that out for us in the Scripture. You know, The best place for us to address the need for repentance related to information is it's to be personally in the Scriptures. It's to be in the Scriptures with others in the body of Christ as well. 
So ignorance is something we need to repent of. By the way, sometimes we don't know what we don't know, do we? So if you say, well, I don't know where God wants me to repent, that's ignorance. Because certainly God wants all of us to repent today of things that we're not all that we will be or should be. If we don't know where our call to repentance is, that's ignorance. And ignorance is not morally neutral. We're culpable for our ignorance because God's laid out His word in His Word what He wants for us. Another thing that happens, guys, is this, our darkened minds. If you told Pope Leo X he needed to repent, but he's got everything in life he wants, do you think he wants to repent? Probably not. His mind is darkened. For you and I, sometimes it goes like this. Uh, I know what God says, or I think I know what God says, but I want something. So don't tell me otherwise. I want my sin. Whatever that thing is, it might just simply be the liberty to tell people off in my anger, to simply vent my opinion. I don't know anything about that one, but I've heard others have an issue with that. Or it could be lust, or and you know all these things where we're harboring something in our mind. We want our sin, we, so there's that area of darkness in our mind, in our conscience. We don't want to be addressed on. We need to repent there, but we don't want to. We need the we need God's cutting word to cut through our darkness. The light of God's word to shine in that area of darkness that we want to hold on to. Another one, guys, and it's significant, is simply our sinful tendency to justify ourselves. What's the first thing that almost always comes to mind if somebody says, Mike, you blew it here? I'm thinking, I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure you're mistaken. I'm sure I'm right. Everything I said was right. Yada, 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 right? We, that, that's our sinful response from the fall in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 on. We always tend to defend ourselves, our carnal selves. We've got to know that we're all right. You've got to know that I'm all right. We defend ourselves. And so we, God's word has to get past that tendency to justify ourselves. That tendency will keep me from thinking God's thoughts and changing my attitudes and actions. And the last that I'll share here is the influences around us that encourage us in wrong thinking and wrong practice. In other words, in our battle with the world, the flesh and the devil, we tend to consciously sometimes, but unconsciously other times, we lose ground over time. Guys, for most of us, this doesn't happen in a day. We don't make a decision in a day to do something wrong. It's gradual, it's slow, and that's why this process of taking in truth and repenting has to be ongoing and constant. So we're called to repent. It's throughout the pages of the Scripture. It's to God's people all the time, and we've got these natural tendencies against our need for repentance. Now, one of the things that we often mistake is uh, what I would simply call not repentance for repentance scripture talks about a sorrow related to sin or failure that's actually not repentance it talks about regrets that you and i have about sin or concerning sin or at least the fallout from sin that's not repentance did you know you and i can be very sad we can have huge regrets and not have biblical repentance. And this is the key text in the Scriptures, is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 on this. Paul had written at least two and maybe three letters to the Corinthian church before this last, this 2 Corinthians letter was penned. And he, he grieved them, because he's calling them up. And he says this in part, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, not just because you were sad or sorrowful, but because you were grieved into repentance. You were grieved the way God wants you to be into repentance. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And this is the key, godly grief, or other translations will say godly sorrow, produces a repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is not a passage primarily about um, conversion. The sal- salvation is a term that's used broadly in the Scriptures. It saves you out of those areas of your life that are short of what God wants for you. That there's a godly sorrow that gives godly repentance, but there's an ungodly, worldly sorrow, he says, that does not bring about God's kind of repentance. It simply produces death. Have you ever felt that? I'm sorry. And you know what this is, right? So I'm sorry I got caught. I'm really sorry I got caught. I really regret I did that because of what it cost me. Now, these are not insignificant. I mean, if we've been sinning in some significant way and we get caught and there's fallout in our lives, it's painful. And, and I don't mean in any way to, to minimize that. Very painful. And we have our natural... We don't want pain. But that's not the same thing as godly repentance. That's not what God's after for us. Am I sorry I got caught or am I sorry that I was sinning against my Father and against my Savior? What's the sorrow over? What's the regret about? That's the issue. Now, you've got a prime example of this in Hebrews chapter 12. And the, the, the writer's been talking about God's a good father and he disciplines his kids. And in that context, the writer says this, related to Esau. He says, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. You know, go back to Genesis and the story. Jacob sells him a pot of stew for his birthright. The birthright was as the eldest son, he gets twice of the inheritance that his brother would get. And it was an honor. It wasn't just the stuff. It was an honor. Well, he sold his birthright for a meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. In fact, it's a pathetic story in Scripture. If you go back and read that, Esau in front of Isaac, it's, it's a heart-wrenching scene. He found no chance to rep- repent. Other, other uh, texts say no uh, opportunity or no way to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, please understand, Esau is an example of what not to do. You're not supposed to read this and feel sorry for him. You're supposed to read this and say, that's what I don't want to do. He's not being held up as someone that our hearts go out, oh, poor Esau. No, the point is, he wanted to repent because he lost the stuff. He lost the blessing. That, he, he was searching for the blessing. He didn't value it. The repentance was not towards God and towards his father. The, the regret and the sorrow was that I lost the thing I wanted. He's an example of, of worldly, death-dealing sorrow. That's not God's kind of repentance. That's what we don't want. That's typically, by the way, what you see in the news. So God-honoring repentance produces a change in our thoughts, words, and actions. And guys, this is one of the things. If you want to know if there's been significant repentance, godly repentance in your life or the lives of those around you, in cases where you know it's needed, you simply ask this question, have the actions, the words changed? If you can't see an outward change, you probably haven't witnessed, you probably haven't experienced 
haven't followed through on godly sorrow and repentance. If it doesn't produce, if the, if the change of thinking doesn't produce a change of attitude and action, it's probably not godly sorrow and godly repentance. Now, back to the... Uh, Back to Jesus and the Reformation. When we talk about repentance, personal repentance and reformation, or corporate repentance and reformation, the Reformers and Jesus were not trying to be innovative in their season. They weren't talking about bringing up some new concept. Repentance was always the thought that we are going back to the thing God wants for us. We're not going forward in something new. We're returning. Our new thoughts, our repenting in our thoughts is taking us back in our actions and our attitudes to what God wanted for us all along. We're not innovating. If you look at Jesus in His day related to Judaism, uh, two examples there on your study sheet. Matthew 19, the religious leaders come up to Jesus and say, is it okay, this was a big deal in their day, is it okay, can we divorce, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus says, no, you can't. Well, there, what's the deal? Well, Moses said we could divorce. Jesus says, well, that's the hardness of your heart. But in the beginning, it was not so. And what does he do? He quotes Genesis. A man, a woman for life. That's it. So they've developed all this thinking. He says, no, no, no. He's not saying something new about marriage. He's restating what was true about marriage all along. That's the deal. Or if you go into Mark 12, uh, the Sadducees, they were the guys who ruled the temple. Pharisees were considered kind of the common men of their day, believe it or not. The Sadducees, they ruled the temple. They were the high priests. They said there's no physical resurrection. And that's interesting. You know, the whole thing with the Messiah is predicated on a resurrection. Jesus says to them, you're mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures and the power of God. And he quotes Exodus 3. And this is, this is wild. He quotes Exodus 3 when God speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, and the tense of the word is the thing, I am currently. They're dead. And God says, I am their God. And Jesus uses that to say, nope, they're alive. And there's resurrection. So we've got to understand, this kind of repentance and reformation, we're not, we're not innovating. We're not getting creative. We're always going back to what God wanted for us all along. We're repenting back to God and His Word. The reformers from Luther and Calvin on understood that the Roman Catholic Church had been adding to the teachings of God's Word so that the faith being represented from Rome was in fact a distortion of the gospel in the church. It was a corrupted form of what God had intended. There's a passage from Isaiah I'll let you read later that just talks about when people come to you with their idea of what God's up to, if they're not speaking from the law and the testimony from God's Word, don't listen to them. They don't have spiritual light. Uh, my son-in-law Steve and I were at a conference in San Antonio last week, and I saw something I don't think I've ever seen before. We were listening to a panel discussion. The, the topic was the Trinity. And there were four guys on stage on the panel. Now, the first guy got up, who I hadn't heard of before, and he basically said of the two guys, so two and two, two views, two views, similar views, two teams, as it were, tag-teaming, the first guy gets up and basically says, these two guys on the other side of the table, they're heretics and they're idolaters related to the Trinity. Uh, didn't mince any words. The two guys he's talking about were Wayne Grudem 
and Bruce Ware. Now, I've been teaching from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology for a long time. It's kind of the standard. It's probably sold more Systematic Theology copies than anything else in the last 20 years or so. Anyway, so they're talking about the Nicene Creed and the Trinity and what is the relationship of the Father and the Son and what does it mean that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father? What does that mean? So, so the, the gauntlet is thrown down and Bruce Ware gets up to respond. And as he gets up, he says, the first thing I need to say is, I may get the quote wrong, I've repented of my view. I now believe that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Guys, this is a guy at Southern Baptist Seminary. He's the head of the department. He's written books for decades. He's a well-known, gracious, great guy. The first thing he does is says, I repent of my view. I was wrong. And I now believe in the, that the Son was eternally begotten of the Father. And this is biblical language. It's nuanced. It's like, how do you even talk about that? Hard to say. It's the first thing he says. Wayne Grudem gets up when it's his turn. And he says, with Bruce, I'll tell you, I've repented of my view. And, I've, I've, and how did that happen? I went back to the scriptures, I read them again, and a guy did a study on the use of the words used in the Bible, and it's shown me absolutely conclusively that the Bible is established all along that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And I now hold that view. In fact, he says, I've got to go back and edit my systematic theology and change the places in which that view is now, in my own understanding, misrepresented. Guys, these are two of the top, top, academic theologians in the United States and the first thing they do is say we repent of our view you almost you would I, I couldn't tell you. I've never seen it before ever haven't heard of it in our in our time but they said we were called up we were called back we were challenged we went back to the scriptures a guy who I'd never heard of before did a word study that showed it has to mean this and so like Luther they basically were saying our minds are captive to the word of God they didn't innovate they went back. They understood our views are outside of what God means. And they went back. We want to take, and this is part of the work of repentance, means it's taking the truth of God's word, it's holding it like a plumb line against our beliefs and our practices. And that's true personally, but it's also true corporately. One of the key themes for me on this whole issue of repentance comes up out of Romans 2. And guys, repentance can be really, really painful. Repentance means I see something amiss in my life. Repentance means corporately, I see something in the church that I think we've got it wrong. It's painful, right? To see your mistakes and your sins and realize I wasn't right, I was wrong, or, or to finally fess up that I knew I was wrong, but I didn't want to say so. It's painful. It's painful. We tend to avoid it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. Now, he's been establishing in Romans, Gentiles are guilty of all these sins, chapter 1. But then he gets to chapter 2, and now he's talking to Jews. And he says in part this, Do you suppose, O man, you Jews who have the law of God, you who judge those, those Gentiles who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches, and listen to this phrase, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. Are you presuming on those, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? One of the mistakes for you and I to make, or the church to make, is to say, I'm going along, I'm living life 
the way I think I should, doing the things, the church, we're doing the things the way we think we should, and God hasn't lowered the boom, so we must be okay. Like Leo the Tenth might have. Must be okay. Pharisees and Sadducees and Jesus must be okay. Because God hasn't struck me down. And Paul says, no, you're missing, you're missing the thing here. God's kindness, forbearance, and patience is meant to lead you to repentance. In fact, this is what you see in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter letter, I think it's chapter 2. But where he's, why hasn't God judged the world? Why hasn't Messiah returned? Well, he's given people time to repent and believe. So this is the whole thing. God's, God's patience, his forbearance, is his kindness that's meant to help us to the goal of repentance. It's this kindness that leads us to repentance. To the religious hypocrites who thought themselves better than ignorant, sinning Gentiles, Paul says God's patience toward their sin was his kindness so they would repent. Now here, this is about, in context in Romans 2, this is about salvation, that initial repentance in which we confess our sins and we embrace salvation in Jesus. But guys, this whole thing goes much wider than that initial grace of repentance and faith. This affects every area of life. Now, if you haven't had that initial point of repentance, I'm at odds with God, I confess my sins, I accept God's saving grace in Christ, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. That's, that's the one we want to get. But after that, God's kindness along the same thought, it's His grace towards us so that we'll repent. So one way that happens is God's kindness shows us our need of repentance as believers. It's not because God's a masochist that he points out the sin in your life and mine or the failures in a church. It's his kindness. So painful and hard as that may be, we need to understand it's God's kindness that's leading us to repentance. Think of Hebrews 12 again where the writer says God's this faithful father and he disciplines us and it's painful in the moment, but it produces his righteousness. Over time, we can see that and appreciate that. So one thing, just the fact that God's showing us our need for repentance, that's his kindness, that's his grace, that's his love. It's also God's kindness that gives us repentance. Have you guys ever had a sin where you say, again, I know nothing about this personally, where you say, God, I know you say this, but this is what I want. And the difference between the two, I can't get where you want me. Would you change my heart because I can't? So I see you're calling me to repentance and I can't get there because I want, I want what I want. Would you give me repentance? God, guys, God will honor that prayer. You read the Psalms, God, you teach me. God, you lead me. You do it because I can't. You can do the same thing towards repentance. Lord, I know I should repent. I see it in your word, but I don't want to. I don't have the will to do it. Would you give me the will to repent? Would you bring me alongside where I need to be? And the last thing which is huge to me. Uh, God's kindness, this, the whole thing about it's his kindness, it's his patience, his forbearance. It's God's kindness that do doesn't overwhelm us with all of our sin in a moment and our need for repentance, but rather he's showing us little by little, and I'm convinced it's so that we don't despair in a moment and just think there's no, there's no hope at all. There's a, I think, this, seriously, I think if God showed us in our humanity the depth and breadth of our sin right now, I think we'd just curl up and die. We'd just say, oh, there's no going forward. Well, let me just die now and get it over with. Uh, Oscar Wilde told a story, and I'll tell this real briefly. He was a master of short stories. He's just amazing. And one of his short stories is called The Birthday of the Infanta. 
And this has got to go back into uh, Reformation era days, sort of. And the, the story is this, briefly. The 12-year-old princess of Spain is having a birthday celebration. And all her cohorts are there, and she's dressed in her finest, and the sons and the daughters of nobility, her age, they're all there together, and they're playing out on the terraces of the palace, having a grand time, and the boys are playing at riding fake horses, and they bring in peacocks and dancing apes, and, and they're laughing and having a great time on her birthday. Last of all, they bring in a dwarf. His head is horribly oversized for his body. He's hunchbacked. He, he is physically deformed. He, he's, uh, he's hideous to look on. He comes before them and he dances, he capers, he jumps, he twists, he turns, they're laughing, they love him. And the little princess, mimicking what she's seen adults do, she takes a white rose out of her hair and she throws it to the dwarf. And the dwarf's heart is smitten and the dwarf is now in love with the princess. And her entourage leaves and he realizes, I love this, I love this gal and she threw the rose to me, she must love me too, I've got to go find her now. So he goes up to the palace and he starts going through the halls and the rooms looking for his true love. And he can't find her. He finally gets to this one big room and as he looks down the length of the room, he sees a monster at the other end of the room. And this monster is short and the head is much too large for the body. It's hunchback and it is so ugly. He hates to, he's wondering, what is that? And so he starts walking towards the monster and the monster starts walking towards him. And he raises his hand and the monster raises his hand. And the closer he gets, he takes a white rose out, and the monster has a white rose too. And he finally gets up to touch the monster and realizes, seen in a mirror himself for the first time, he is the monster. And he despairs, and he dies. And the entourage comes in, and they see him, and they want him to dance, and they're laughing at him again, and he's realized before he dies, it wasn't. The distance between me and her was insurmountable. They weren't laughing at me because they loved me. They were laughing at the hideousness of my physical stature. And I think that's a pretty apt description. If God showed us the depth and breadth of our sin in a moment, I think we would despair with the dwarf. It's God's kindness that only shows us our sin and our need for repentance, but it's his kindness that parses that out little by little. You know, I'm tempted to despair semi-regularly, the older I get, the more sin I see, the more grievous my sin appears to me. And it's just like, Lord, would you just kill me? And let's just end the pain, end the suffering. But if he showed us all our sin at once, guys, I don't think we could handle it. In fact, I think at the judgment seat of Christ, it's when the old sinful nature is gone and the old body it's connected to, it's only then that Jesus can review our life with us and we can, we can, we're able to see it as he saw it, as it really was, the motives and everything else. So it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Another thing, too, we want to be very careful of, guys, it's this. Don't worry about tomorrow's needs for repentance. Just take care of today's needs for repentance. What is God calling me to repent of today? There's an old saying that goes this way. Think not that you will turn to God when you will, if you will not when you may. Don't assume you'll do it later if you won't do it in the moment. And you can and should. So, lying, parents speaking ill, acting poorly towards children, children speaking ill, acting poorly towards parents, cheating, thoughts, envy, whatever those things are, what is it that God's putting His finger on for us today? How do you and I work out our own reformation? How do we come to recognize deficient beliefs and practices and repent 
and therefore build our lives on the rock of God's Word. Let me just take you through quickly self-test again. We've done this at the end of each of these messages. Have I ever repented of my rebellion against God, my alienation from Him by simply entrusting myself in the saving care of Jesus Christ? Friends, in eternity, nothing else matters. If we haven't accepted and embraced the salvation in Jesus, nothing else will matter to you in eternity. This is the one thing you've got to get right. Have I done that? Am I confessing my sin to God and to others as needful? You know, many sins we just confess to God. We're done. We're forgiven and life goes on. Other sins are against other people. We need to confess those sins to them as well. Reconcile, make up in the ways that can be. So that I'm not hardening my heart to truth and my own need of repentance. Am I keeping short accounts? And again, that's that thing about today. You know, Scripture says, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. That's true for believers as well as those who have not come to faith in Jesus. Don't harden your heart. What God puts on your heart today to repent about, repent today. Am I, am I immersing myself in the truth of God's Word, using that as the plumb line against which I measure my own thoughts, attitudes, and actions? That's what you'll see throughout the Scripture. That's what precipitated the Reformation as well. And guys, let me tell you a secret. And candidly and, and graciously, I hope. I know that most of us don't read our Bibles. I know as much as a, it's sort of a, a, a laugh that we say, line and lamb, read your Bibles. I know that most of us don't. I know that because I, I know you and I know the people you interact with. I know most of you don't read your Bibles. And I don't say this to condemn you. This is the thing. This is part of the thing. You're losing God's grace to bring about repentance in your life. You don't get it because you're not putting yourself in the place where God can speak to you. Now, God speaks in a number of ways. And, and Sunday morning teaching from the Scriptures, that's one way. But day to day, it's that truth of God's Word that's keeping us where He wants us to. That's, that's that short form of repentance. So there's all kinds of things we lose out on when we're not in the Scriptures day by day. But this is one of them. We simply miss God's grace of repentance because we're not in His Word. We're not also dealing with other regular fellowship with other believers in an iron-sharpening iron way. We've by the way, if you notice week to week, the things that we need to do for all these are almost always the same. They're variations on the same theme. It's because those are the graces by which God speaks to us and helps us grow. Do we have relationships where others know us, our hearts, our actions, our attitudes, and we know theirs? Because if we don't, we're missing this other venue by which God speaks to us and shows us our need of repentance. Do I take seriously when someone expresses a concern to me? Do I take that seriously? Or do I just write it off? Do I justify my behavior? Or do I sit and soak? Lord, is there truth in that? Do I need to take that in? And do I ask God, Psalm 139, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any hurtful, harmful way in me. Am I asking God that? Lord, you show me. I know I'll need repentance. I don't know when or where. Would you be showing those things to me? So guys, as you leave today, what's one thing you know today, just between me and the Lord, one thing I know that I need to repent of, I need to... I need to take my thoughts captive to God's Word, not getting innovated. I'm coming back to the truth and the call of God's Word. What's that one thing I need to do today? A life built on the rock of God's Word is a life of daily, regular repentance. That's God's call. Father, thanks that You love us so much that You've not only sent Jesus to die for our sins, but You've given Your Spirit and Your Word by which, Lord, we can see those areas of our life they're out of accord with You and Your grace and Your kindness and Your goodwill for us. And Father, would You continue to help us to see our need 
for repentance and your grace and kindness in both showing it out to us and your provision in Christ and in the truth, your spirit and your word to help our lives be in conformity to your own. In Jesus' name, amen.